So before we can completely understand salvation, we must understand why we need salvation. Only when we come to grips with the true nature of our sin is it that our best effort apart from God leaves us broken, wounded, lost, uncertain, and wandering through the world looking for happenings to offset our depravity, our pain, our uncertainty, all, all these things. And we go through life trying to avoid feeling something, or we go through life doing things that help us feel an emotion, escape an emotion or feel an emotion. And, and things begin to sit on the throne of our lives that pull us apart from God's plan. They misinterpret how we are to see ourselves as God sees us, as he looks down, fearfully and wonderfully made, created with a purpose, valued at the deepest level of love that we could uh, comprehend in human, in human form. Only then that we understand our sin can we begin to fathom the depth and the love and the nature of God, who he is, what he says about us, what he's inviting us into to be kingdom people, to be kingdom-minded, to allow the Lord to sit on the throne of our lives and not our selfish will, our own agenda. If someone's in need of forgiveness, the question has become, have they suffered the consequence or become shamed enough? And see, in our culture, we have a, a shaming system in place where if somebody does something wrong or does something embarrassing, it's often captured on the phone, and that shame cycle will continue on into um, days, weeks, months, hours later, where in my day coming up, something happened that was forgot about tomorrow. Well, in today's world, someone is placed in the shame system, and no matter what it is, a political figure, a church leader, a, a any, anybody in day-to-day life run the risk of being captured in a little video or, or miss a, a segment of their life is totally um, an unguarded moment and misinterpreted for the entirety of who they are. So anxiety is a result. Fear of failure, fear of man, fear of um, seeing ourselves the way God sees us, recognizing that we don't deserve anything, but God's given us everything. So the fear to live into God's plan and, the, and shifting over to the need for it to be needed, the need for approval becomes a dominant force in our lives. But God's given us the opportunity to come to an end of ourselves, and that's through surrender. That's recognizing that our best effort at life isn't working, hasn't worked, and won't work. So as we surrender our will, we surrender our agenda, and we allow the Lord to guide our purposes. And we read his word, we understand his plan, we hear his voice, we host the presence of God, recognizing that the Holy Spirit is a gift to us, the counselor, the provider, the healer. That's not something we deserve, and oftentimes we think it is, and we put so much emphasis on our feelings versus our mission that God came and he died for you, that you might come to an end of yourself, that you might confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you might then be saved and that you might then be restored to God's plan and about kingdom business, that that would precede your own and that would um, certainly trump 
the heaviness of mood and emotion and resentment and unforgiveness that hold us back from the fullness of life. So we get caught in this thing and we look for people to tell us who we are versus allowing God to tell us what he thinks about us. So I'm going to tell you a short story about how God's redemptive work ongoing in my life. I'm in great need of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness every day. I haven't arrived. I've got further to go than I have have made progress. Um, But since my own struggle through life and struggle through addiction, by default, God has given me a place to minister for 17 years. No matter what my title or, or my context might be, he's given me a place to be the voice of hope, the presence of hope, the voice of truth um, in a broken world. Um, there, there was a young guy who was involved in a situation where he didn't see himself the way God saw him, so he, he, he went through life pursuing the next experience, the next um, achievement, the next uh, short-lived victory, and that became the guiding force for him. Um, emotions would begin to tell him what to do. Anger, sadness would inform his decisions. And sadly, this, this guy had the platform to live into all of what was offered him. An education, a loving family, uh, a, a church was present in his life. So there was an awareness of God, but there was no willingness to come to an end of oneself where surrender would begin to take root on a heart level. So this guy got himself progressively deeper into a dark world where he soon would be engaged in illegal activity and illegal drug use. And he got himself in a situation where he was in, in debt to, a, to a, a dealer. And I, I stand up here and I tell you this story not to, to glorify the darkness of the world, but to really um, depict the difference between darkness and life, to, to unpack the contrast between darkness and light, sin and shame, glory and honor. And that's why I tell you this story. So this guy gets himself in a situation where his life is on the line. He has nowhere to go. He, ha- he has no way out. And he's looking at a situation, trying to control it to the point where all he had left was faith, but no surrender. He believed in God, but he was unwilling to come to an end to himself. You see, substances sat on the throne of his life, and total depravity affects the entirety of man. Total depravity is um, the entirety of man affected by sin, the body, the mind, the emotions, the will. The regenerated person does not truly have a free will, but is a slave to sin. So you see, desire to change is one-dimensional, but decision to change is everything. And we can sit around with our, with our storyline and our brokenness and our regret and our resentment and our unforgiveness, the things that hold us back, and we desire transition, but we're unwilling to make a decision for change because decision involves mourning the loss, more often than not, the loss of a lifestyle, a false identity, an experience that we think we deserve. And we begin to go through, the, through life uh, wanting change, be it as extreme as addiction or as, as simple as medicating 
your pain or loneliness through any means of, of temporary happiness, like Black Friday, right? <laughs> um, so it's, to, to say it again, that, that a decision to change is one-dimensional, de, uh, desire to change is one-dimensional, decision to change is where true life change occurs on a heart level. It moves beyond the mind to, a, to the heart. And there in that place, what begins to inform the heart is something new. That God's word would come in and reorient our lives back to the way that he sees us as perfect and blameless through the blood of Christ. As he looks onto our lives and we, we accept the Lord as our savior and his purposes become ours. The things that are unexplainable in the natural man becomes second nature for us. The things of the Spirit, the forgiveness, the compassion, the love, the generosity, those things become second nature where the power of God begins to shape our, our ambition, our will, and our tendencies. So sin, two places. And I'll come back to that story in a minute. Sin places us under the judgment of God. Original sin is the sinful tendencies, desires, and dispositions in our heart we are born with, therefore, original sin is something inherent in us. We sin because we are sinners. This is a hard issue. This is an inherent nature. Imputed sin is where we are regarded as having sinned in Adam and so deserve punishment of death. Our standing before God is ruined. So the fall in the garden set us all on a course of total failure and everlasting need for the forgiveness of of God. So two things need to be resolved in our lives. The sinful nature that enslaves us to sin, the flesh, the corruption and depravity is remedied by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit is entrusted onto your life and the sanctifying work is the possession of the Holy Spirit for right thinking and right living. And have to becomes want to where there is passion. So the passion of God begins to burn in your heart where you're possessed by the Holy Spirit and you want to engage people. You want to offer forgiveness where it's not deserved according to man. You want to make things right where um, they're so wrong and it's easier to turn your head and look the other way. So original guilt and condemnation in Adam are remedied through the justification in Christ. We have to have that to have the Holy Spirit, to be justified, to be purchased with a price, the atonement of Jesus, the blood of the cross that is offered you through the recognition of that most important story that you'll ever hear, the recognition that Jesus died. He, he came into this world. He died for your sins. He was innocent and blameless. He rose from the dead and he's coming back. What kingdom are we aligned with? David's sin progression is an interesting uh, storyline as, it, as it, it unfolds. David's country is growing and more secure while his house is failing. How many of us can relate to that in a time or, or, or in a season or just the, the reoccurring reality that um, business or life may be going well, but our own house is at odds. Our own house is um, in need of, of something of God because our best effort isn't working. 
kingdom principles applied to these broken situations, this, this uh, reality of God, uh, the need of God in our lives, becomes the solution if we recognize that our best effort isn't working. The only thing we have to offer is sin and confession and humility and repentance. And when those are in place, surrender becomes second nature, and God does a work. But we have to recognize that, that our best effort is, apart from God, is lacking hugely. So David allowed himself to fall deeper into sin, and you can see in uh, uh, James chapter 1 and 13 through 15, you can read that on your own where it talks about um, the, the, the sin giving birth or uh, the desire, uh, the human desire, the, sin, uh, the flesh struggle giving birth to sin and then sin ultimately leading to death. So the, the thought processes that we go about apart from God lead to habits. They lead to strongholds. We, a thought comes into our mind. We begin to entertain that thought. Then all of a sudden we're way down the road to uh, a road, a high-risk environment, a high-risk relationship, a high-risk activity. We, we move down that road not because of an unguarded moment but because a thought was manifest in our lives oftentimes by the enemy or the world or our sinful desires, the flesh, and we entertain that thought. And then we drop, drop our guard way down this road that was preventable, and then consequences unfold. So even if we do right and make things right, and we come to terms with our sin, like David did in this text, consequences are certainly going to transpire. So the tendency is to build lines of defense around our sin, Defense mechanisms, justification, minimization, rationalization, denial, projection. And David, he went through a bit of this as he tried to unpack and minimize the reality of the sin that he committed. David lost his focus. He had at least seven wives and 16 sons. And get this part. He's managing a country as large as the Jewish people had ever controlled before or since. So the guy had incredible influence. He had incredible power and prominence and position and authority. And it wasn't good enough for him. At the end of the day, he said, I want what I want. And it wasn't that he just dropped his guard. He allowed his flesh to move through, a, through a, a systematic thinking of sin where God was off-center, and he fell in such a way that caused him a lot. David and Bathsheba uh, both were not in the place where they should have been. Bathsheba shouldn't have been out in, in the open air, visible, creating a, a potential problem for herself or someone else, and David should have been off at war. But neither were were where they should have been. The adultery almost brought an end to the family through which God planned to physically enter the world. So you think about that, you think about all the little things that are happening in this one little chapter of 11 in 2 Samuel. There's more than one message here. There's a lot of things that are unfolding. And perhaps... The most important is to recognize that choices are critical. And Bathsheba's unfaithfulness, her being tempted, her being lured, 
her pregnancy, the death of a husband, the death of a child, all these things were preventable. Many of us can relate to preventable um, a, a sin and, and preventable death, certainly. Um, preventable uh, things that are, that are easily, e- easily avoidable if we're surrendered, if we're recognizing the temptation around us and allowing the Lordship of Christ to help us unpack our decision, our attitudes, our feelings. We think about something, we feel something, we feel an emotion, we act on it, and if God's not a part of that system, we move towards habit and stronghold. And that's where addiction comes in. And sometimes it can be more than just a substance. It can be anger. It can be selfishness. It can be an attitude where we are at the center of our will. And anybody that comes against that is in, ultimately in our way and coming against what we think we deserve or what we want to do. So we're going to read just a couple more verses here. Looking back, David placed himself at the center of his will. Again, his desires guided his attitude and his actions. The story here is more about David than it is Bathsheba, and it is the temptation led him into sin. He sinned deliberately in in verses 6 through 11. I want you to hear this closely. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to the house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and therefore followed him a, a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord. When David told him Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab, the servant of the Lord, are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my life? And as surely as you live... And as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. So what's unfolding here is David is tempting Uriah uh, to go and lay with his wife, to set aside his responsibilities as a soldier, to set aside his purpose um, in, this, in, the, in this, this battle, to set all that aside and disregard God's plan for his life and to fall into this complicated orchestration of deceit that David had arranged, trying to position himself uh, with liberty and freedom that he might be beyond, uh, above reproach and blame. And David, uh, Uriah, it would all just kind of play out in the end. Can't we all relate to that? Can't we all relate to creating this complicated story that protects us, that keeps our, 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 our will and our ambition centered in our lives, and that uh, deflects anybody that would come against it. And thank God for uh, truth-tellers that would come into our lives and hold us accountable. See, the thing about accountability is everybody wants it until they get it, right? (laughs) We all want to be accountable until it it shows up in our lives, and then it confronts us with the reality that we need to come to an end of ourselves. If you're not a, a part of some form of accountability, if you don't have somebody in your life that tells you the truth, I encourage you to, to look for that. So David tried to cover his tracks, um, and it didn't work. 
it didn't work. There were consequences, there, were, there was regret, and there were things that were beyond his repair. So despite, uh, in verses 12 and 13, I'm just going to read a couple more verses. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow, and I'll send you back. Uriah remained in Jerusalem that next day, and David invited him, and he ate in the presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. So David then, after it didn't work for him to unite him back with his wife, he tried to get him drunk to see if that would work. Despite his, his being chemically impaired, his reasoning, however, Uriah refused to compromise his values. And instead, he spent the night among his master servants. So his morality, his awareness, his sensitivity to Jewish law, his sensitivity to his role as a soldier, his, his awareness of an end consequence was more... Um, faithful and reasonable than David's was. So David, he murdered in order to protect himself. He ended Uriah's life, and Uriah carries his own death warrant into the battlefield. Think about the, writing the letter that must have included the longest night of anxiety for David. Here, here's one of his most um, valued soldiers. Here, here's a uh, the, the temptation of the flesh that is guiding his decisions. Not the power of God, not a surrendered life, but the, the, the flesh that was way ahead of um, a surrendered life in this, in this situation. The, he writes this, this death warrant for Uriah to carry into the battlefield. And he does that, and he carries this into uh, the battlefield, and he gives it to Joab. Joab reads it, and he's just blown away that this would be happening. And he says... And he has Uriah killed, and then innocent men are killed along with him. So there's, there, there's, there is uh, consequences that can't be undone here. But thank God David comes to an awareness of his own sin. As his sin was exposed in the next chapter, and you can read on in chapter 12, the prophet Nathan confronts David in 12, 9, and 11, and David, and here's the, the, the underscore message of importance this morning. David immediately confesses, he humbles himself, and he repents, and God immediately forgives him. So wherever you are today, whatever you're dealing with, whatever false belief system you have in place, if it's not about the truth of the gospel, the simplicity of God's love, come to terms with that. Place yourself under the leadership and the influence of somebody that is a bit further to you, than you on their faith journey, that's a, a bit more responsible with the things that God has entrusted them. All of us are in great need of grace and forgiveness. Nobody's better than the other. The foot, at the foot of the cross, it's level. But we can certainly look to people that recognize the process of surrender, surrender, confession, humility on a heart level, uh, repentance, a changed life going the opposite direction. So David's confronted by Nathan. Who's confronting you? Who are you allowing to tell you the truth? And are you defensive? David received it, and it changed his heart. And God honored that. Total depravity, as I said before, the entirety of man is affected. The body, the mind, the emotions, the will. The unregenerated person does not truly have a free will but as a slave to sin.
the story ends like this. This guy's life was on the line. The story I was telling on a personal level, this guy's life was on the line. He had no way out. He had to confess his sin. He had to invite a redeemer, a benefactor, a person of compassion and grace into his life. And in doing that, his father stepped in and he paid off a debt that was pretty significant, a debt, a a financial burden that then lived into this guy's family that took away from his quality of life. Not only that, it created this anxiety and this fear for this father to think about, man, my son's out here dealing with, you know, situations that ultimately could end his life um, or have him locked up. You talk about living apart from God's plan. And in doing this, this father steps in and he pays his debt. The person that uh, was owed the money then um, turned down the degree of intensity that he was in pursuit, you know, and, and things, things weren't good. And I tell you today that because of that act of compassion, that mercy triumphs over judgment, that the attractional nature of Christ in this father was such that it was a foundation of who is my best friend today, my own dad, who stood in the gap and paid that debt that was an example of Christ's love that invited me into God's plan for my life. I very easily could be dead or in prison as I stand up here in front of you, and I tell you that it's like David, a recognition of God's faithfulness, his mercy, And that surrender day by day, i got a long way to go, is critical to right living before the Father. And William Booth said, the greatest of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. Is there an awareness of sin in your life, and so a greater awareness of the depth of God's love for you? And I said it in the prayer that holiness is morality on fire. Let your life and your heart and your purpose and your will be aligned with the Father, that holiness would be second nature for you, and that you would care more about the things of God than you do your own selfish ambition and tendency to put yourself at the center of your will. Thanks be to God. God bless you. God love you.